executive director of the Massachusetts Newscast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, with host myself, Joe Rossi, and co-host and vice chair of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, Tim Williams. Welcome to the No Flood Newscast, uh, the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition's official podcast, and we are here once again with my co-host Tim Williams, also chair, co-chair of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, again under uh, quarantine. Tim, thanks for jumping on the, uh, we should start calling it the quarantine podcast. <laughs> thanks, Joe. <laughs> Glad to be here again. Yeah, no, this is great, and it's it's kind of, uh, we've adapted over the last several podcasts to move from our in-studio base to uh, Zoom, uh, so our audience uh, listening uh, may notice a difference in uh, kind of what we're doing and the conversations we're having, uh, because we're now doing it over Zoom, uh, and with that, uh, with us today in his first Zoom experience, um, hopefully a positive one, is Chris Heydrich. Uh, who has many different positions within the uh, industry of flood, past chair of the Flood Insurance Producers National Committee and uh, owner of the uh, Trusted Flood, uh, Private Flood brand. And so before I go too far, uh, Chris, welcome. Thanks, Joe and uh, Tim. Happy to be here. Um, Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming. And I want to, uh, before we dive into some of the real detailed questions we want to get in with you. Um, give our audience a little bit of a background of what you do in the, in the flood industry, because you do a bunch of different things. Yes, and it's, it's, it's evolved over time. Um, I've been in the property casualty insurance industry my entire career. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I opened uh, an, an independent insurance agency in Sanibel, Sanibel Island in Florida, and realized I had to learn flood pretty darn quick. Um, and then there were some unique experience or unique opportunities to learn even more about flood after bigger waters. Uh, and then the homeowner flood insurance affordability act, and then the introduction of private flood insurance, you know, have all created uh, this disruption in the market that um, compels you to, to learn. And as I've learned, I've gotten more involved. Um, so I started with the independent agency, eventually opened up trusted flood, um, And I've been the chair of the uh, Flood Insurance Task Force for the Independent Insurance Agents of America, or the Big I, for I think it's been about six or seven years. And and tell, again, also just for a little background, what does both the the task force and the Flood Insurance Producers National Committee, what do they exactly do for uh, the, the agent community and the country as a whole when it comes to flood insurance? So the, the task force is a sounding board. There are about 10 um, members of the big I who are uh, part of the, the flood insurance task force. And there are some years that we only get, get together by phone a couple of times. And there, if there's more activity going on, more legislative activity, uh, we might get together more frequently. If we're asked for feedback, for example, if FEMA asks for agents' opinions on something um, and since, you know, ask for a survey, we may send that out to the flood insurance task force. 
So it's really a sounding board. And the nice thing is it's made up of members from all around the country. It's not really concentrated in any one area because as you know, flood risks are very different from one part of the country to another. Uh, flood risks are very different depending on the type of structure that you're writing. Uh, so uh, no one person can be an expert on all of that. Uh, it's good to have uh, agents that represent, um, have different focus, if you will, in, in different uh, parts of the, uh, of the program. And then the Flood Insurance Producers National Committee is a group that's uh, sanctioned by FEMA, has been in existence for, I think, before the 80s, I mean, probably the 1970s. And it's, um, it's made up of really three associations, um, the Big Eye, uh, PIA, and Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. Uh, each of those three associations has a, a primary representative and an alternate. Um, so I've been, the, the way the big eye chooses its representative is whoever is chairing the flood insurance task force uh, sits on the flood insurance producers national committee. Flood insurance producers national committee is a, a sounding board to FEMA. Now, obviously, when you look at uh, the national flood insurance program, there are some aspects of that that are legislative in nature. Um, and the FIPNIC does not get involved in those things. Each association on its own will go and lobby and speak with members of Congress and their staff to try to work through various reforms or reauthorizations. Uh, the Flood Insurance Producers National Committee is helping FEMA to implement um, within their authority under the law. Uh, so you know, if, if something's going to require a, a statutory change, FIPNIC doesn't get we may discuss it a little bit, but we don't get really get involved in that. Uh, our role is really to talk about the things that FEMA is working on within their authority and what they might be able to do um, to provide a better experience. Awesome. So that that is um, really important from the both the agent community and the national perspective because it really helps uh, move the program into a place where the consumer. Uh, in theory, is having a better experience since that's really what the agent's doing is that connection between the National Flood Insurance Program and the consumer. That's right. I mean, the, the, the good news uh, is I've even seen this just over the six or seven years that I've been involved, is that there's been um, a, a very big shift in focus within the within FEMA and the NFIP, or FIMA, I guess might be able to Historically, and this is going back several years to, uh, to a time when most of the management that's at FEMA today wasn't there. Right? This is the predating or uh, regimes that predated that. Um, their focus was really more on the fund and more on making sure that there was an interpretation, whether it's in the manual or a, uh, of a process or policy um, that was taken, but it was really more on protecting the fund. It really was uh, Roy Wright when he became uh, the, the head of the NFIP um, that brought in a management team uh, and, and with a focus of, uh, you know, how do, how, what do we do to protect the customer, right? The fund will take care of itself, but what do we do to protect the customer? How do we give the customer the experience that they expect when they buy an NFIP policy? And you know, with that focus, they've done a number of things. I mean, they've They've got better technology now that gives them the ability to actually manage the claims process after a catastrophe um, in a much more effective way than they were than they were able to 
previously. Um, they are looking at uh, how they rate, I mean, risk rating 2.0, and is this, uh, does the premium actually reflect the risk um, or is it an arbitrary line? Um, how do we get advanced payments out to customers quickly um, after a storm? Um, they're even looking out at how do we revise the forms that we use so that they better reflect what customers are used to in private industry as opposed to you know, what was created. So you, essentially you have an NFIP program that was created in the 1960s, 1970s, and uh, really over the last four or five years um, has been a, a, a shift in the way that the program is viewed and how do we update this and make it um, provide a better customer experience, whether that's to the write your own company, to the agent, and most importantly, to the consumer. Tim? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, there's certainly in the last five years, we've seen dramatic change both in the NFIP and the private side um, and, and, the, and the popularity and the growth of think have been good for the customer and consumer. What do you, like now that the, the top question that's coming to my mind with COVID is what kind of economic strain are we going to see both from the residential side and the commercial side? Do you see anything that's going to take place in the next, it's hard to predict, but I know I just wanted to kind of throw it out there. I mean, the only risk that I can think of um, would be um, the number of uninsured um, that if, Right. I mean, if you have to choose between putting food on the table and, and purchasing a flood insurance policy, it's, it's a pretty clear decision for most people. Um, but, you know, for the, for the most part, if you own a home, um, you, know, you need to continue to insure it unless you have the means to be able to self-insure. Uh, if you have a mortgage on that house, you need to keep the flood insurance policy in place. And if you don't, the lender is going to force place coverage. Um, so... I don't know that I would see that I would predict a dramatic um, impact one way or the other um, regarding COVID, but it certainly does provide a headwind into our collective goal of trying to get more people insured for the parallel flood. Right. Yeah. And and on that note, do you in in going forward and seeing all the different the, the different issues um, that we've seen in the past with moving Congress forward? I mean, I think. You know, you are somebody who has really has literally testified in front of Congress when it comes to flood insurance. What does this do? You said headwinds in terms of increasing our number of insurance. What about headwinds in terms of getting long term reform and reauthorization? Um, what's your um, thoughts about, you know, we're we're in a place now where we're in, I think, our 15th or something short term extension. Um, where are we going? I don't think I think the consensus was. 2020, we weren't going to get anything anyways, other than another, you know, kicking of the can on the September 30th deadline. But where do you see this going now that COVID has literally consumed our legislative, both at the local, state, local, federal level, has really consumed all of the legislative bodies? Right. Well, you know, as important as NFIP reauthorization, long-term reform is, uh, I think we'd all agree that the current crisis um, does deserve all of our attention at this time. Um, at some point, we'll come out of this and, and be able to return back to a focus on long-term reform. As you said, Joe, um, there wasn't going to be any long-term reform this year anyway because it's an election year. Um, just things don't happen. Um, you know, the conversations I had with uh, people on the Hill 
before the COVID crisis even came out. So I just don't expect anything this year um, you know, because of the election year. What's a little uh, disappointing is that in each of the two, last two uh, congressional sessions, the House of Representatives passed a long-term reauthorization bill and the Senate never took it up. And um, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to take to get the Senate to turn around and, and actually you know, pay attention to this program and, and do something. Um, there are definitely some differences of opinion, um, but that, yeah, that's kind of outside the scope of the question that you asked. I think that um, for 2020, the fact that it's election year, uh, it pretty much was gonna halt any meaningful reform to the NFIP this year. Um, next year, it just depends on where we are in the COVID crisis and uh, you know, how much time lawmakers have. And, and a lot of, some of it may have to do with the election also, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And also, yeah, and also um, uh, just to tag on to that, you said, you, you know, you just started digging in a little bit to the existing legislation, Justin. What's, what is your thoughts on, on what's already happened in the House? Because technically, until this Congress is over, we have a unanimous out of, out of committee a unanimous bill in the House to reform flood into, uh, I think it was five years with a bunch of different pieces that really, I, again, 59 to zero in House Financial Services. You know, what, what's what's your perspective on what's going on with, with that? Because obviously that's not going to move forward. But, you know, we got to a place, I thought, last year where we were really going to see some progress. I, I thought so, too. Um and like I said, it it got held up in in the Senate. The you know, the I, I personally think that the bill that the Financial Services Committee passed uh, was a good bill, um, especially that it came out fifty nine to zero. Um, there was more money available for mapping. Um, there's uh, uh, it, it. I think some of the. I guess overall, you know, there, there are a number of different pieces to this, right? And, and when I look at a piece of legislation, actually, the first thing I look for is, uh, are there any bad things in it? Like, that's, that's the first thing you want to do is get rid of the sure. bad stuff. Yes. It's easier to get rid of the bad stuff than it is to try to get the good stuff in. Um, and, and, you know, there really wasn't any bad stuff. Uh, there, there were a couple of provisions in there that I thought were maybe a little unnecessary, um, but um, over, you know, when you look at it, it wasn't worth the time to argue it. Uh, so the biggest thing that wasn't in there was any reduction in compensation for the write-your-own carriers. Um, you know, if we're going to provide a good experience for the policyholder, um, then the agents need access to those resources that the write-your-own companies provide. If you start slashing that compensation or forcing agents to work with the NFIP direct facility, and as hard as the NFIP direct facility tries, they're not funded the same way mm-hmm. um, and not staffed the same way, and um, you know, are, are at a disadvantage to providing answers and solutions to a very complex program to agents and ultimately consumers. Um, so I, I think that was the most important thing that was not in the, um, the House bill. Um, from what I understand, that's actually one of the big hangups on the Senate side. And I actually answered this question when I testified. Um, you know, I think it was a, a member from New Jersey that asked um, about write your own compensation and how I felt about it. 
And, and you know, I, the answer I gave was this, that it just seems to me that there are members primarily from the Northeast, and I think they've recruited some, some others from other parts of the country as well, who are still looking to get their pound of flesh or penalize the write-your-own companies um, for uh, things that occurred during the claim settlement process after Sandy. There's no question that that claim settlement process, that there were problems, right? I mean, you don't have the kind of the kind of litigation that you had and the, kind, the level of complaints that you had if everything was working well. So clearly there were things that went wrong there. But as I said earlier, those things are fixed, right? I mean, you have a different culture. You have a different mindset. You have a different system now where, you know, back in 2012, the NFIP couldn't tell you how many claims they had open or where those claims were or where they needed to allocate more resources, whether it's adjusters or what have you. They had no way to get advanced payments on the customers. And all that stuff is in place now. And in fact, there's actually evidence. If you look at Hurricane Matthew 2016, if you look at 2017 with Harvey, Irma, Maria, you look at Michael last year, there wasn't that kind of litigation. There weren't those kinds of complaints. I mean, the, the, the money went out faster than ever before. So, you know, it, it really, it's, it almost seems like punishing your child for something they did six years ago because you just learned about it today. If my parents operated that way, Chris, I'd be in trouble a lot now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, wow, that's, yeah, no, I, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things. I, I mean, I think Tim can, can attest to the fact that I mean, we began at, at the Costa Coalition gathering coalitions of legislators up here to be in, in favor of these authorizations. I mean, Tim, what was it back in 2017 we held that legislative roundtable? Yep. Yeah. And, it, um, you know, we had representatives from. Yeah. And it, I mean, they don't know. I think so. They're not in it every day. So when we bring all these topics up, they're like, oh, I didn't think about, you know, those types of residences or those pre-firm structures or whatever it may be, is always an issue that they, they don't know everything because they're not in it all day. And then when we bring up some of the, the adverse things, the topics that may come about because of their proposed changes, it, it really could, you know, it's eye-opening to a lot of them. So um, I guess I wanted to kind of move forward, Chris, a little bit, is do you think real risk rating 2.0 will be stalled now? Because I mean, it, it got kicked down the road, almost like we're seeing now with the reauthorizations. I, I kind of, I feel like it's just going to be postponed, you know, a couple more years and keep being kicked down the road a little bit here based well, on political, you know. What, what, what's interesting, Tim, is risk rating 2.0 does not require any statutory change. It doesn't require Congress to do anything. It's you right. know, all the changes within risk rating 2.0 are within the authority of FEMA today. So okay. the question is, will Congress act to stop FEMA right. from making mm -hmm. progress? Right. Um, I, I think that, um, and I, I think risk rating 2.0 may actually drive the long-term reauthorization that we're seeking as FEMA gets closer and closer. Um, FEMA has a, a very carefully laid out communication plan um, to uh, make sure that they can address concerns from members of Congress. And, um, and I, I think that you know, the biggest concern that, that I have heard uh, that Congress has is thinking back to bigger waters, that 
you know, who's the one policyholder that's going to get some giant increase or be forced out of their home or forced to close yeah. their business. Um, yeah, there are already caps um, within um, within the, the U.S. code today uh, that say that FEMA can't increase rates by more than X percent. Uh, so I don't think that we're going to, I mean, so there are some controls there. There's been some discussions about possibly lowering some of those caps. I think FEMA may actually be working to try to keep some of those parameters, um, anticipating that that issue is going to come. I mean, FEMA doesn't want to uh, go through all of this work over the past three years and then have it all thrown away. I mean, think about it. These are employees like you and me who go to work every day at FEMA working on this great thing that's going to help bring the National Flood Insurance Program into the 21st century. It's an exciting project to work on. You know, if you're on that team, you're the employee of FEMA, you want to see this succeed. And you want to see it succeed for the right reasons, because the culture that's there is let's, let's provide the best experience we possibly can to the consumer. Let's put you know, common sense and logic back into the NFIP. Yeah, and it's... It- like you said, you're in Sanibel, we're up here in the Northeast, it's completely different flooding risks, you know, terrains and all across the country. So it'd be nice to kind of get 2.0 to, you know, consider some of those areas and not have it just be so, you know, this is A zone, this is your rate, this is your V zone, this is what, you know, and, and take some of those factors, risks into consideration you know and you know something else that's interesting is that if you think of um one important difference between bigger waters and risk rating 2.0 is bigger waters was driven by congress risk rating 2.0 is driven by fema right which organization which members which people who are involved actually have more knowledge and understanding of the program of the policy um of rating um i i think that's an important distinction yeah, and you know, it's it's really interesting because, Chris, I think that Bigger Waters, right before Bigger Waters, was really my introduction into flood issues, um, starting with coastal infrastructure. But I remember at that time, a bunch of, um, you know, people offline would, would, would tell me, look, you know, we were in front of Congress from FEMA, from, from FEMA saying, hey, we were in front of Congress warning them that this was going to be a huge issue. But they still move that 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 forward. So to your point, you have people who are in the weeds every day, which is really what we advocate for is get the act. Like Tim mentioned earlier, when we talk to these congressional folks about the issues that they propose, not understanding the recoil that some of these will have down the road, because they're not the ones that are in it every day. And we wouldn't really want them to be in it uh, every day based on what they did in 2012. So it's, it's just interesting. That's a great perspective. It's one that I don't think a lot, enough people, both just the common people in Congress consider. Right. Because it's, it, it is really, uh, it, it is really a great point. Um, now, so, so just, we've got about five, five or six minutes left here. So just to kind of cap off our discussion today, uh, which has really been wide ranging and really informative. Um, I, I want to just touch on the private flood piece a little bit, kind of, kind of tail off today, because I think it's one of those pieces where people are really now, um, with everything going on, and even before this, looking at those renewals that are coming in, right, especially on some of these older buildings that might be second homes that are seeing 25% annual increases from the National Flood Insurance Program. We saw changes last year with lender uh, acceptance of private flood really the nation is moving to a point where we have these two worlds 
that hopefully eventually will work closer together than they are now. What's your perspective on overall private flood, what you're seeing in the industry in terms of the markets that are coming and going or coming and staying, and how that interaction works between private flood and, and the NFIP? Well, I think it's important to start and recognize that the NFIP has always embraced the private market. Um, so from day one, um, it is a common goal that we have to try to get as many people in this country insured for the peril of flood as possible. I think we'd all agree that that number is way too low, has been way too low. And uh, our collective goal is to get more people involved with the peril of flood. Uh, the, there, there definitely are different models, right? Um, and let start off by just saying that Let's look at the auto insurance industry as an example for a moment, yeah, because there's this concept or this concern that's been lying out there uh, that the private market is is going to um, create adverse selection against the NFIP. Um, you know, if you just take that at its face, then that would suggest that only one auto insurance company can succeed, right? You, but you watch television and you see commercials one after the other after the other, all these companies saying that, you know, the average person that comes to us saves $400, $500, whatever it is. So it's normal in the insurance industry to have multiple companies that have different methods of selecting risks and different methods of pricing risks. And that's their proprietary competitive advantage, you know, in addition to service, um, that differentiates them. And, you know, and they all can make a profit at the same time. Yeah, the, um, the, the disadvantage the NFIP has, uh, for one, risk rating 2.0 is going to eliminate a big part of that disadvantage, right? Because they have such an antiquated binary way of selecting and pricing risks. And, and the part that doesn't go away is that they still have to take all comers, which means that they can't uh, deny people for loss history. And severe repetitive loss properties are still going to be an issue for the NFIP. But the rest of their rating methodology is going to come in line with a lot of the private market. At the private market, you know, in 2014, it was just the perfect time, right? Uh, you had technology that we could finally model flood risks, uh, which allows companies to uh, you know, be more accurate, more confident in their probable maximum loss, their PML, to better calculate AALs, uh, and to price their 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 products. Um, you also had, with the technology, you know, the ability to use LIDAR data and other databases to get elevation information, so you didn't have to rely on manually created elevations. Uh, and you were also at a time where there was a lot of capacity in the property insurance market. The one thing that has changed out of all that is the level of capacity in the property insurance market. Um, premiums are going up and companies are um, you know, changing their underwriting and being more selective or maybe even leaving some lines of business. But that's not a function of flood, right? That's a function of the property insurance market. Um, so Lloyd's isn't giving out capacity like candy anymore. And <laughs> so, I, you know, I don't know that you see quite as many new players coming into the market. I really haven't seen very many players leave the market. What, what I see is for those companies that are using Lloyd's uh, syndicates to back them up, is that you may have to switch your syndicates around. You may have a different lead. You may have a different a new player that comes in. Um, but the bottom line is uh, you're going to be held accountable um, that the, the honeymoon period's over. And those programs that are delivering on their promises to London um, will probably continue to get funded um, or to get their, get their capacity. 
but I mentioned different models. I mean, you've got some companies that are have this automated underwriting and modeling system. You're using these various databases and coming up with a, a unique price for each risk. And then you have others that use more of a blunt instrument, instrument that kind of looks more like first place insurance. And, and both those models seem to be succeeding. Um, but the bottom line is uh, the loss results are going to have to be there. And it's going to be interesting when risk rating 2.0 comes. Now you've got another real competitor in that market. And I, I don't think it's going to be just an exodus one way from NFIP to private. It hasn't been that way already. I mean, we have, as an agent, I've rewritten people from private back to NFIP. I've rewritten yep. people from NFIP over to private. And I just yep. think you're going to see more of that when um, FEMA you know, brings its rates uh, to a, a more refined methodology that better reflects the actual price for the risk. And, uh, and, and again, that will create back and forth. People will leave uh, the NFIP for private at that time. People will also be leaving private for the NFIP at that point as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, well, with that, Tim, uh, any final thoughts for, uh, for Chris? No, I think he summed up the uh, private and the NFIP market, you know, pretty well. I mean, I always look at my big fear with the NFIP was always, like you said, everyone kind of, they're getting stuck with a bad risk. But with if rating 2.0 comes out, that should help them level off that, you know, and not have to do that. I think, um, you know, I always wondered if the NFIP would have some type of reinsurance model where things could be seeded to the pool so they're not getting all those terrible kind of risks, you know, kind of like what we see with the auto industry and some of the states have it for home insurance too, that, you know, if it's a risk that's, you know, there that, you know, they kind of have that already, but, um, you know, it, I think it makes sense the way Chris laid it out with private versus NFIP. And yeah. rating 2.0, it's definitely going to help the NFIP, and it's needed for that reason. Yeah. Well, great. No, that's, that's, that's very true. And, I mean, I think, you know, as we look down the road here in the next five to ten years in the long term, you know, and, and it's funny, I go back to the first National Flood Conference I went to in 2015, if you can believe it was that. That was my first one. Uh, and I think, Chris, if I'm not mistaken, that was the first one PCI held after a while of um, uh, being kind of dormant. Um, and when I was at when I was at that conference, I remember somebody saying in a in a presentation, this is all going to shake itself out in down the road. It may take 10 to 15 years, but at some point we're going to get to a place where all this all these issues around NFIP and private and long-term reauthorization versus versus all the different reforms will eventually get to a place where we're placing business everywhere uh, that we need to with both private and NFIP working hand in hand with long-term reauthorizations for the National Flood Insurance Program. I guess the real challenge is when is that going to finally settle itself out? And it's just going to be a little bit longer, I think. But um, I think after today's uh, discussion. Um, there seems to be a lot of hope that that's yeah. Hopefully, and I would say itself you know the, the mapping aspects, the mitigation aspects, are you know ten years ago that wasn't really being talked about. So true. Yeah. Mitigation. Map mapping is becoming less and less important, right? As you go back, as you move towards probabilistic modeling, uh, which is what the NFIP is doing in risk rating 2.0, it's what much most of the private market is doing. Uh, the maps really don't matter. It probably is important. Yeah. Now, the maps can't go away, right? Because what the maps do is they no longer will be creating rate 
but they are still necessary to carry out the mandatory purchases. Right. So the maps are only going to be used to determine whether or not your lender has to require you to carry flood insurance, but they're not going to have any impact on the price. Sure. And, and also understanding, um, and, and actually it'll be interesting to see how they work risk rating 2.0 into understanding flood risk for a mitigation standpoint um, to say, hey, are we going to use flood mapping for that? Or are we going to use flood modeling for that? Um, but that function, as Tim was just alluding to, is so important that it cannot be ignored that the National Flood Insurance Program is saving private carriers as well, a lot of avoided losses because of their requirements to elevate homes um, and other things um, that are required. Um, but so, Chris, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the No Flood Newscast uh, and, and being with us today. Um, and hopefully down the road as things turn and uh, uh, maybe maybe in a couple months or a year or so, we can come back and uh, talk about all the things that have happened, hopefully moving the National Flood Insurance Program in private forward, uh, hopefully in a market that's a little bit more, uh, a little less hard uh, in a little bit uh, of a place where the National Flood Insurance Program maybe, just maybe has some legislative reform uh, <laughs> happen. So thank you again so much for being part of this. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Tim. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks very much. And we hope to uh, have everybody back for the next No Flood Newscast. Uh, and thank you all very much.